You're listening to Show 12 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. You're listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast, our platform for educating real estate investors about business, accounting, and taxes. You'll get actionable advice that you can use to increase profits for your real estate venture. And now your host, an entrepreneur who happens to be good at taxes, Brandon Hall. Howdy, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. We're going to get more into the weeds today, specifically in regards to the new 20% pass-through deduction. Before we do, a couple of quick things for you. We had a webinar in February that was for clients only. Brian Eastman from Safeguard Financial came in and gave a great presentation on how to mitigate UBIT taxes on retirement accounts. If you are a client and you missed the webinar, pay attention to the client newsletters that we send out as we will be sending out the webinar replay through that client newsletter. We're having another private webinar for our clients on March 29th. We're going to be bringing in the big guns from law firm off at Kerman to talk about how to better structure your leases with your tenants. So keep an eye out for that invite. Again, that's coming out on our client-only newsletter. Because today's topic is going to be a little dense, I invite all listeners to navigate to our webpage at therealestatecpa.com, click on the resources tab, and then webinars. Watch the replay of the webinar I hosted in January of this year, and this year being 2018 in case we're way into the future and you're still listening to this. It talks about all the tax changes and what you want to watch out for and kind of takes a little bit of a mediocre dive into each area of the new 2018 tax law. So make sure that you do watch that webinar. It's open for everybody to go watch. There's no restrictions on it. So even if you're not a client, you can watch that as well. Lastly, if you like the show, leave us a rating on iTunes to let us know. I sincerely appreciate everyone who has done that so far. So let's get to it. As a result of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, starting in 2018, taxpayers with qualified business income, which includes rental income, might be eligible to take a 20% deduction on their QBI. Now, QBI means qualified business income, and I'll be referring to it as QBI throughout this podcast. So just remember, qualified business income. The deduction is going to be available to sole proprietors reporting on Schedule C or E, LLCs, and S-corporations. It is not available to C-corporations because C-corporations have their own new set of tax rules, mainly that 21% flat tax rate. This pass-through deduction is not going to be available to service businesses unless you're below the taxable income thresholds, which I'm going to describe in a second. So determining whether or not you are eligible to capture the full 20% deduction on your qualified business income, your QBI, it's going to be based on what your total taxable income for the year is. The taxable income thresholds are as follows. Single filers have a 157.5K, so that's $157,500. That's your threshold. If you're married filing joint, your threshold is $315,000. There are phase-outs, so single filers, if you earn between 157.5 and 207.5. There's a phase out, phase in between that. And what I mean there is if you're a service-based business, let's say that you're a single filer and you're below the 157.5K threshold, then you're good. You get the 20% pass-through deduction. But if you're in between 157.5 and 207.5, then you, you still get some amount of the deduction. And it's too complicated for this podcast 
to delve into that. So just understand that you're not totally phased out, but you will be totally phased out once you hit 207.5, so 207,500. And again, that's if you're single. The married filing joint phase outs are between 315 and 415. So if you earn more than $415,000 and you're married filing joint, you will not be able to take that 20% deduction, especially if you're a service-based business, but then we'll be switching over to, to another calculation, which I'll talk about in a second. So kind of backpedaling here a little bit, these thresholds that I just talked about, this is your taxable income. It is not your AGI or your adjusted gross income. This is going to be your total income, less deductions like IRA contributions, and also less standard or itemized deductions, right? So our total income, like like our total self-employment income, W-2 income, real estate income, that all gets factored into my AGI, my adjusted gross income. And then from the AGI, we're taking out either our standard deductions or our itemized deductions. And from that, we get taxable income. So that's the number at the end of the day that we are concerned with is that final number, that taxable income number. If you can keep that below 157.5K if you're single and 315K if you're married filing joint, you will have a much easier time calculating your business income deduction and you're not going to be subject to any sort of limitation which we will describe here shortly. So let's take an example. Let's say that we have three rental properties and we net $20,000 for the entire year from those three rental properties. Let's also say your spouse is a doctor and they make $450,000 per year. Your total income in this example is $470,000. Let's make it easy and assume that this is also your adjusted gross income. In this example, we'll assume that you get a $40,000 itemized deduction. So if our AGI is four seventy, dollars and we get a $40,000 itemized deduction, this means our taxable income is $430,000. And right in at taxable income of four thirty, dollars we are not only above the married filing joint threshold of three fifteen, dollars but we're also above the phase out of the married filing joint threshold, which is three fifteen dollars to $415,000. So this is a good example to demonstrate what happens at the threshold. So if I'm below the thresholds, that taxable income threshold, then I simply get to take 20% on my qualified business income. That 20% is what they're calling the pass-through deduction. So it's a free, easy deduction that I get to take. If I'm above the threshold, like the example that I just gave, that's when it's going to get much more complicated. So when we're above the threshold, the deduction is now the lesser of 20% of qualified business income or the greater of 50% of W-2 wages paid to employees or 25% of W-2 wages paid to employees plus 2.5% of the unadjusted basis in any property owned. The best way to explain this is going to be to use an example. So let's say that I buy a property for $110,000. Let's assume that the land value here is $10,000 and the building value, otherwise known as the unadjusted basis, is thus equal to $100,000, right? So I bought it for 110, my land is worth 10, my building is worth 100. After expenses, I net $10,000 in rental income for the year. I don't have any employees, I'm single, And I have a W-2 job that earns me $300,000 per year. 
Since I'm over the 157.5K total taxable income threshold for a single individual, I'm going to calculate my deduction as follows. It's going to be the lesser of 20% of QBI, which in this case, my QBI was $10,000 in the net rental income I earned. So 20% of $10,000 is $2,000. So it's the lesser of $2,000 or the greater of 50% of W-2 wages paid to employees, which was zero because I don't have employees, or 25% of the W-2 wages paid to employees, again, zero, plus 2.5% of the unadjusted basis of the property. Well, and going back to the rental, I bought it for one ten. $10,000 was land, $100,000 was my building. So $100,000 is my unadjusted basis. So in this example, 2.5% of my unadjusted basis is $2,500. So now my calculation looks like this. It's the lesser of 20% of QBI, which is $2,000, or the greater of these other two W-2 calculations plus the unadjusted basis calculation. So $2,500. So now what that boils down to is the lesser of $2,000 or $2,500. So obviously in this example, my deduction is limited to $2,000. If that sounded confusing, it probably is. And honestly, this is one of those things where it's a little bit easier to write out. So check out our blog posts that we've been posting because we've talked about this a couple of times and I've definitely talked about this on Bigger Pockets. And again, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out because we're more than happy to further explain this to you as best we can. So without the 2.5% of unadjusted basis being added to the calculation, most landlords would have been left with a $0 deduction. And it's easy to see why, because if we go back to that greater of, like the greater of 50% of W-2 wages or 25% of W-2 wages plus 2.5% of the unadjusted basis, well, if we didn't have the 2.5% of the unadjusted basis, all we would be looking at here is wages. And landlords don't really have employees, or at least in most cases. So they don't have W-2 employees. Thus, they don't pay any wages. Thus, the deduction in most of these cases would be zero for landlords. So it's a really good thing that the 2.5% of the unadjusted basis was added in. And it's commonly being referred to as the Trump Corker addition because those guys invest pretty heavily in real estate and this deduction is going to greatly benefit them. But what happens if I have fully depreciated property? Is that depreciated property excluded from that 2.5% unadjusted basis calculation? So again, I buy a property for 110. I have $10,000 of land, $100,000 of unadjusted basis. What if I've depreciated $20,000 of my unadjusted basis? Do I still get to take the 2.5% on the original $100,000? The answer is yes, but maybe. So the 2.5% calculation is not going to be reduced by depreciation unless the property that we are depreciating is outside of the depreciation period. The depreciation period starts on the date that the property is placed in service and ends on the later of 10 years or the last day of the last full year in the asset's regular depreciation period. Now, what this means is that your ongoing depreciation expense will not reduce the ability to claim that 2.5% of the unadjusted basis. 
But if you have fully depreciated property and it's been 10 years since you placed that property into service, then you can no longer use that property's basis in your unadjusted basis calculation. That probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So here's a better way to put it. Any asset that was fully depreciated prior to 2018, unless it was placed into service after 2008, will not count toward the unadjusted basis for purposes of the 2.5% calculation. When does this actually matter? Really two times. One, when you get a cost segregation study performed on your asset, or two, when you separately break out personal property and land improvements for depreciation purposes. So let's say that I install carpet, a property with a five-year useful life. I would normally depreciate that over five years, excluding bonus depreciation. At the end of five years, that carpet is fully depreciated and I can no longer depreciate it. But for purposes of the 2.5% unadjusted basis calculation, I still get to include that carpet's original basis in my total unadjusted basis of the property for a total of 10 years. So even though I've already depreciated the entire carpet, I still get to include it in my property for 10 years after that original place in service date. And that's a really cool feature of the 2.5% calculation because I can have fully depreciated properties on the books and still be benefiting from my 2.5% deduction by being able to include the basis of these properties in my total basis for that 2.5% calculation. So as you can see, your unadjusted basis, again, that is your basis without land, your unadjusted basis matters immensely. Let's say that I get a cost segregation study performed on my property, and let's say that my property has a $1 million unadjusted basis. Let's assume that I'm able to allocate $400,000 to personal property. So of the $1 million unadjusted basis, $400,000 is able to go to personal property. So for the first five years, I get a huge depreciation increase. So I'm happy. But after that personal property has been fully depreciated, my depreciation, my annual depreciation decreases, decreases quite drastically. But for the next five years, because personal property is fully depreciated in five years, but for purposes of the 2.5% unadjusted basis calculation, I still get to include the basis of that 400K in my total unadjusted basis. So my unadjusted basis in this example of $1 million will be that way for a total of 10 years, regardless of how I break my property out. So during this entire 10-year period, I'm able to consistently claim a 2.5% deduction on my unadjusted basis of $1 million. So for 10 years, my annual deduction is $25,000. But the problem here is that after 10 years, my personal property, which was originally valued at $400,000, is now outside of the depreciation period. So my unadjusted basis for purposes of calculating the 2.5% deduction is now only $600,000. So we had the $1 million unadjusted basis. Now we're removing, because it's been 10 years, we're removing the 400000 of personal property. Now I'm left with a $600,000 unadjusted basis for purposes of the 2.5% deduction. Now my annual 2.5% deduction is only $15,000. So this hurt me by $10,000, basically, or my free 2.5% deduction has now decreased by $10,000 on an annual basis.
Let's take a quick breather. That was a lot. And now we're going to bring it a little bit more high level. So we're kind of done with the super heavy stuff. And now we're going to focus a little bit more on some theory and some really unproven theory. I'm going to preface this section by saying we are still waiting on treasury guidelines to be issued, but we have some interesting things in here. So this whole talk about this pass-through deduction, the 20%, the 2.5%, all of that stuff, you can really only take any deduction if you have qualified business income. The key word here is income. And if you were reading a blog post right now, I would bold it, I would star it, I would italicize it and underline it. You have to have income. Many landlords have rentals that produce passive losses. So what do you do in the event that your rentals produce passive losses? Well, frankly, you might be out of luck. If you have passive losses, you obviously don't have income. So for purposes of this pass-through deduction, there's no qualifying business income to take the deduction on. And that poses a problem for folks who want to maximize their tax positions. Interestingly, this pass-through deduction is taken at the entity level if an entity is in place. And what we have yet to receive guidance on, and again, I wouldn't recommend implementing until we do, is whether we can split our rentals up into different LLCs, an LLC holding a rental that produces passive income, and an LLC holding a rental that produces a passive loss. The logic here is that if I have one rental producing $10,000 in net passive income and another rental producing $10,000 in net passive losses, when I aggregate the two on Schedule E, or even if they are both in their LLCs together, so they're in one LLC, when I aggregate the $10,000 in income and the $10,000 in losses, I don't get a deduction because my net net is $0. I've broken even from a tax reporting standpoint. But if I put the rental producing income into an LLC, the theory is that the LLC itself will qualify for the pass-through deduction at the entity level. So everything still flows back through to me, but on $10,000 in net profits, I can earn myself a free $2,000 deduction simply by moving the property that produces that $10,000 net income, moving that property into an LLC where it's separate from the properties that could potentially be causing passive losses and offsetting the income. So if I'm going to do something like this, I might have LLCs in place that only hold my rentals that produce passive income. And I might hold my rentals that produce passive losses in my personal name, or I might throw them into their own LLC. But the key is to not let passive income be aggregated with passive losses before the entity level deduction is taken. The caveat here is that this is not going to work with a single member LLC. That's because single member LLCs are disregarded for tax purposes. So you'd have to have a partner. Maybe it's a good time to get married. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email me back at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any questions or feedback. We're always taking on new clients. And with the 2018 tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with the service level that you think you're a good fit for. We'll connect with you shortly after that and get you onboarded.
Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week. If you enjoyed today's show, please visit therealestatecpa.com for our newsletter, tips, articles, and podcast show notes. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast. We'll see you next time.